This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Megan Camrick. Anthropologist Margaret Mead wrote once, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. But how do we know change is possible? Like, how do we know we can ever do anything about school violence? Later on in this episode, Megan Camrick will talk with teacher and author Mariana King, who delves into the roots of unsafe schools in her book, The Crisis of School Violence. It's about how things like violent media and video games, as well as bullying and school hierarchies, prevent schools from being more peaceful learning environments. King is particularly critical of first-person shooter games and how those may help mass shooters plan their attacks. But first, we're going to explore the idea of whether there's a template for creating a successful movement for change. You know, millions of people around the world protested plans by the United States to invade Iraq in 2003, but that did not stop a disastrous war. There have been thousands of protests seeking to address climate change and stop the burning of fossil fuels, and yet climate disruption continues to grow worse. These things worried authors and researchers Brian Gruber and Adam Monier Edwards. They wondered if people were growing more cynical about whether such action could actually bring change. And if so, what impact would that cynicism have on democracy? So they decided to explore examples of people who faced seemingly insurmountable odds and yet overcame them to achieve change. The result is their book, Surmountable, How Citizens from Selma to Seoul Changed the World. Co-author Brian Gruber spoke with correspondent Megan Camrick. How did you choose which movements you would explore in the book? We started with this original idea, like, is there a playbook for determining what's successful? So we looked across media eras, the newspaper era, radio, TV, social media. Over the course of the last hundred years, we looked at a geographic spread, and then we looked at a spread of a broad range of different subjects so that it can be fairly universal. And from that, we came up with 13, including uh, three overseas, the Arab Spring starting in Tunisia, the Candlelight Revolution overthrowing President Park in South Korea, and the Euromaidan Revolution in in Ukraine. We felt that these 13 movements would provide a, a breadth and depth that can provide a lot of answers. And you focus on some that many of us would know, the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War protests. You also write about Alice Paul and the battle for suffrage in the U.S., She learned a great deal under the British suffragists, the Pankhursts, who were willing to be a bit more radical than their American counterparts. How did Alice Paul help bring the battle more into the streets in the U.S.? She was a Quaker. Back in the day, you had a social responsibility, if you were a Quaker, to find what was your calling or what they call your concern. And she actually had an epiphany while uh, speaking, I think it was to Christine Pankhurst, the, the younger Pankhurst, that this was what she needed to do. And because she went to school in London, she became active with the Pankhurst and really got an education there with a level of ferocity and, and determination that carried through where many of the, of the suffragists in the United States felt she was too aggressive, but she felt if we go state by state by state like this, which was the Susan B. Anthony strategy, it'll take 200 years to do this, and we want this now. 
They did pay a steep price sometimes for that. Oh, they were tortured. They would force feed them when they went on, on hunger strikes. Not only that, they were constantly humiliated. They'd be protesting in front of the White House. They'd take President Woodrow Wilson's speeches about democracy and burn them in trash cans. It was very provocative. And of course, men who, after 5,000 years of patriarchy, thought that wasn't a very ladylike thing to do, would just approach them and spit on them and slap them and, and humiliate them. And Alice Paul actually wrote the text for the Equal Rights Amendment, which has yet to become part of the Constitution. Is it an example of success and failure? You know, the notion of success is discussed over and over in the book. There were two assumptions that we had that were constantly smacked down by thought leaders and by uh, social movement leaders. One, that there's a playbook. If you do these things, you'll be successful. And the converse is true, that actually you have to be willing to fail. Some of these struggles are multi-generational. Often there's violence perpetrated against the protesters. So the idea of success might take a while, and you might have, you know, as they talk to the fellow Sam Walker at the Voting Rights Museum at the, at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, you know, he talked about his work with young people because the work uh, to be done in an area like racism in the United States can take generations. And Brian Gruber, you and your co-author of Surmountable Adam, Monier Edwards, also explored the Bonus Army. Here are these veterans from World War I. They come to Washington, ask for pretty basic things, a bonus to their really low pay while in the war before they die. And eventually you have Douglas MacArthur calling them traitors, George Patton leading the eviction of them from their camp that they set up in Washington, D.C., burning down shacks, gassing them. That seems like a failure at first. Yeah, and it was only when Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a liberal, sent finally these uh, remaining protesters down to the Florida Keys, and there was a massive hurricane, and Ernest Hemingway happened to be, you know, at the bar in Key West when all this happened, and he saw, when all these guys were, were flooded and killed, he saw their dead bodies floating in the water, and he wrote this story in a leftist publication that became a, a national outrage. And that finally, two things happened. Uh, one was really transformational. One, finally they got their bonus after all those years. Again, struggle, struggle, struggle. The things you think you're going to do are successful are failing, but yet uh, suddenly serendipitously or through people seeing an injustice publicly, often but when protesters are beaten or, or killed, this, that happens. Another thing that happened which really transformed American society, and that is that World War II had so many more soldiers that there was a feeling in the ruling class and the, in the, in the elite of the political class, if we screw these soldiers this time, there's going to be a real revolution in the country. So what they decided to do is, hey, why don't we do something fair for the soldiers? And they created something called the GI Bill. And the money that was put in the hands of the soldiers during the Depression was a major turning point, particularly among ethnic minorities uh, and poor people, where suddenly you could buy a house and you could buy a car and it revitalized the economy. And in World War II, as you know, the GI Bill really was to some degree responsible for the explosive growth of the middle class and the health of the American economy. You also go from mass protests to the dogged persistence of one person, Gregory Watson, in amending the Constitution. And in short, the amendment states that a sitting Congress can't give itself a raise or cut its pay during its current session. 
any raise or cut can only take effect for the Congress that follows a sitting Congress. Is he an outlier? Why did you want to include him? Well, uh, this was Adam's guy. Adam is not obsessed with this guy, but fascinated with him. The fact that one American with no budget, I mean, not a small budget, no budget, using stamps and a telephone and a fax machine, went out to all 50 state legislatures because he got a C grade in his university class, and he was pissed off about that because he was writing about how to change the Constitution. And so he went out and he did it single-handedly. I flew to Austin from Standing Rock and had dinner with him, and he's a very eccentric guy, and he has all kinds of opinions that I won't necessarily share on air. But he showed that one person who is determined and focused over time can do something dramatic. And what he did was really boring. And by the way, he was inspired by his mom, who is an Equal Rights Amendment activist, and he would see all the mailings and watch the example of his mom trying to change that amendment. And so this one person changed the United States Constitution. She should have used him to help us pass ERA. Well, no kidding. Yeah. Well, I'll give him a call. (laughs) You explore the Arab Spring. Let's quickly remind listeners what we mean by that phrase. It begins in 2010 in Tunisia with one man. There was a fruit vendor in a small Tunisian town who was so frustrated at bureaucracy and hopelessness after being bullied by a policewoman that he took two cans of paint thinner in front of the municipal government building and set himself on fire. And there were a series of things after that, how the president, Ben Ali, visited him in the hotel room in this ghoulish scene that outraged people. And gradually, people like this woman who I met, just walking around this protest. I mean, so many of these people I met serendipitously. People who were apolitical, who were watching this guy for 23 years, but afraid to come out in the street. And they would see protesters and think, these people are idiots. Why are they doing this? But finally, there was this spark. There's a Korean professor who I interview who talks about the political opportunity theory. And it's a little frustrating because it's outside of your control. And that is that you do all these things to bring the body politic to a certain point of awareness, of solidarity. And then there's an unexpected external event that happens. And it's often unforced like this one guy setting himself on fire, or this TV news reporter in Seoul finding the tablet computer of the aide to the president, or one Afghan Ukrainian sent out a Facebook post and said, this guy's corrupt, we gotta do something about it, let's all take the subway and meet in in the Maidan, in the main central square, and protest. People showed up, oh my God, there's only 200 people. The next day, there were a lot more, police beat them up, and suddenly all these parents are watching student demonstrators being beaten, and suddenly you have 100,000 people, and then they send more violent uh, thugs to beat people up, etc. So these are examples where people are apolitical, and it gets back to that sort of Alice Paul transcendent moment where she has this epiphany, or what she calls a concern, and after that, people are willing to die for their cause. There's something in the human condition. And I think the founders of our country, as much as many of them were slave owners and misogynists and and racists, embedded in the Constitution certain ideals that talk to this yearning for people to govern themselves, to be free, to have justice, to have freedom of expression. And so in these all these different situations, those things 
happened, and I thought it was especially instructive to see how these things happen. Things that we think are American and are our Constitution, which did influence the rest of the world, usually in a positive way, these are kind of universal yearnings that are true everywhere. It seemed so hopeful with the Arab Spring, but it also sort of opened up a Pandora's box, chaos in Libya, horrible repression in Syria, also the intrusion of ISIS. How would you ultimately say it was successful or not successful? Again, you can look at that from two points of view. One, if you do a scorecard, Arab Spring, not very successful outside of Tunisia, even some problems in Tunisia. But you also have created a culture among young people in Tunisia and throughout the Arab world who are very tied into the internet and to social media, who had a sense that they could do something and that, again, political opportunity theory, in the future in those countries, through an interim period of struggle and even more repression, there may be dramatic changes in each of those countries. You talked to Todd Gitlin at the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. He has some interesting thoughts on what is a protest and how the outcome you see from it depends on the time frame, as we were just saying, days, months, years, and even Martin Luther King said on his last night of life that he may not get to the promised land with his followers. How do the folks that you spoke with reconcile that it may be a very long time before they see change? I think it's one of the reasons you need leadership because like in Albany, Georgia, when their voting drive fell on its face, you needed a Martin Luther King or a John Lewis or various people to say, let's learn from this failure and now let's go to Selma and take it to the next step. Do people get discouraged? Absolutely. Can these things be multi-generational sometimes? Yes, so it is frustrating. That's where I think when you look at the commonalities through some of these protests, someone with a vision who can help to perpetuate that vision, a kind of brand or concept or vision that, the, that is imbued throughout the organization is valuable. If you have the messaging is not quite right, the leadership's not quite right, the logistics on the ground are not quite right, then you'll be less successful. For example, we know that people were very inspired in 1963 when Martin Luther King gave his speech on the Lincoln Memorial Steps. What we don't know as much is that there were a bunch of ladies in a room making 60,000 cheese sandwiches so that those protesters can stay out there all day. So logistical things can be as important as vision. But yeah, it can be frustrating, and I think it gets back to the first chapter in the book that this thesis, which I didn't hold when I started this project, but which so many of the interviewees shared, that there is a transcendent desire for truth and justice and for freedom, and people, even at the risk of their lives or putting their bodies on the line, are willing to keep up that fight because there's something deep inside that they feel where they know that's right, and that sometimes can mean they want a different life for their children or their grandchildren. So they do not want things to continue the way they're continuing. Well, we'll have more with Brian Gruber later in this program. There's also Megan's complete interview with him, as well as a link to his book with Adam Monier Edwards called Surmountable, How Citizens from Selma to Seoul Changed the World. Find it all at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Look for the September 2021 episode. Coming up, we look at the factors driving school violence and rampage shooters when Peace Talks Radio returns after a short break.
This is Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Megan Camrick. You know, we rely on schools for so much when it comes to creating the next generation of adults to lead our society and hopefully engage in nonviolent communication and peacemaking. But it's difficult for them to learn these lessons if they face violence in their own schools. This can certainly harm them physically, but also mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Some studies indicate that at least 20% of school children report being bullied at one point or another, and 9% report actual physical attacks. And while some crime and violence have decreased in schools, multiple victim homicide incidents have been increasing. Mariana King is a teacher and author of the book, The Crisis of School Violence, A New Perspective. And she spoke with producer Megan Camrick about the role of violent media and of bullying in school violence. What are the primary drivers of school violence? Schools are becoming more hierarchical. The Columbine shooters brought to light the fact that the jocks and preps uh, formed elites, uh, which got away with uh, displays of power through bullying even to the point of torment. Uh, However, I point out that the current standard practices of conflict mediation, target hardening, surveillance, peer mediation, conflict resolution, they don't work. Some do, you know, depends on the quality, but they don't work because they don't address the root problems because they don't talk about social injustice in terms of the hierarchy. They don't talk about the powerful influence of electronic entertainment media, especially violent video games. And I think that the reason that they don't is because of a lot of misinformation and disinformation about the studies, you know, 70 years of studies into first into violent television. And then in more recent time in the uh, last 20 years or so, hundreds of studies about the psychological and uh, neurological effects of being exposed to violent video games. So the disinformation includes, of course, the Electronic Software Ratings Board, which is uh, supposedly monitors uh, violent video game content and appraises it. They claim that, for example, the great majority of video games are not violent. 85% of video games are violent. And the violence has become more graphic, more immersive, more realistic, and more influential. A prime example of misinformation is many people cite the 2011 Supreme Court decision, which concluded that the research is not sufficient to support an argument that violent video games are harmful. However, the problem is that the Supreme Court chose researchers who had an average number of about 3.9 peer-reviewed articles. They did not cite the research of the larger group of uh, researchers who have an average of 39.1 peer-reviewed articles. So the Supreme Court made a decision based on bad research, uh, or at least inadequate research. But many people cite that as the Bible as to why uh, violent video games should not be curtailed. Uh, Video game researchers also talk about triple entitlement. Most rampage shooters are white heterosexual males who, within the ideology of American exceptionalism, they feel that they're entitled to exceptional treatment. So when they're bullied over time, one of the responses of these white heterosexual males 
is to really overreact to the bullying and the cumulative effects of the bullying. But also a key part of this and an overlooked contributing factor, a key factor is first-person shooter games. First-person shooter games became widely popular in 1992. Youth violence, bullying, and rampage shootings all increased dramatically in 1993 and raised the threshold. How can we be sure that this isn't the statistical mistake of correlation versus causation, because there are other factors that work into school violence. Well, scientifically, looking at the data uh, of school violence and youth violence since 1992, when first-person shooter games were introduced, also in 1992, for some inexplicable reason, uh, violent uh, entertainment media content doubled. So there is a synergistic effect in 1992 of these two primary forms of violent entertainment uh, colliding. If you look at the method of the way that rampage shooters do it, most of them wear combat military clothing. They have multiple weapons. They have assault rifles. And their combat strategy they used in killing as many people as possible in a short period of time, they use what they've learned by being the first person shooter in these games. Dr. Ron Slaby is a senior research scientist at the Harvard University and Boston Hospital for Children, and he has concluded that violent video games are trainers as much as they are teachers. As far as correlation, I'm going to let the 400 studies speak for themselves that the psychologists and the neuroscientists have done, which show that exposure to violent entertainment media causes increased aggression and violence. And then my book takes it one step further by linking exposure to especially first-person shooter games, you know, combat games, with rampage shootings. The most notorious rampage shooters were the most addicted to violent video games. I'm writing a book now called Rampage Shootings, and I'm doing more case study research. Uh, Breivik, killed people in Norway. He used video games as training simulators, but also in his jail cell, he's insisting on an update of his Xbox PlayStation because he's still addicted to violent video games. Lanza, notorious for the Newtown, Connecticut shooting of so many young children, he had a military video game room in his mother's basement. Look at the Columbine shooters. They were addicted to the video game Doom which was a first-person shooter game. So it's beyond correlation at this point. And also the sense of self-aggrandizement that comes with being you know, the number one master in the universe and the ability to kill with impunity. So there's a sense of self-aggrandizement and grandiosity. Eric Harris of the Columbine shooter said, ich bin Gott, meaning I am God. So there is a sense of self-aggrandizement that adds to the already present sense of uh, triple entitlement. So there's this combustive factor. But my argument is that rampage shootings would not have occurred on the scale that they have and that they are uh, without the catalytic factor of exposure to first-person shooter games. And Mariana King, can I ask you, though, um, just to play devil's advocate, there are millions of people who play these games who don't go out and shoot people or bully people. What are the other things that can tip them over? Is it family? Is it social economic class? Well, most uh, rampage shooters tend to be blue collar and more tend to be middle class. And that, that differentiates them more from adult shooters who tend to be more working class. 
they tend to come from what one researcher calls subtly dysfunctional families, mm-hmm. although there are many subtly dysfunctional families. Uh, some of the shooters have been exposed to horrendous life experiences, like Jeffrey Weiss of the Chippewa tribe. You know, his father was in a shootout with police and was uh, killed himself. His mother was an abusive alcoholic woman who abandoned him repeatedly. So, you know, the anger builds up and the anger uh, is present in all rampage shooters, this rage, this uncontrollable rage, and also this sense of justification. It seems that rampage shooters particularly have something called rejection sensitivity. And so they're more sensitized to being bullying or being mistreated, being mistreated in the family, but especially being mistreated in school. So they're more sensitive. So and, and so a lot of rampage shooters tend to keep journals. They tend to have what I perceive to be an art, more of a sensitive artistic side. And so I think that because of that, they're more uh, susceptible to reacting more emotionally strongly to being rejected or being mistreated than uh, other Uh, young people. But the Secret Service and the FBI, 20 years after Columbine, still say there is no useful profile of the rampage shooter. The current book I'm writing is working to close that gap. And uh, Mariana King, in your book, Crisis of School Violence, you do highlight several programs that are designed to decrease bullying. How do they work and how effective are they? Southern Poverty Law Center started a program called Mix It, in which schools are encouraged to have students have lunch with different groups of kids so that there is this sense of inclusion. A lot of rampage shooters have been rejected repeatedly over time, and rejection is really contrary to human nature. My book also has a chapter about human nature. It concludes that humans by nature are compassionate, cooperative, egalitarian, and justice-loving. And justice-loving is important because that's what is one of the primary motivations for rampage shootings. These young men want justice, and the schools, by not providing adequate bullying prevention programs, haven't done their job, and they do not provide a route for justice. So the shooters create their own sense of justice. Revenge is a mutated form of justice. Did you find any of the anti-bullying prevention programs that seem to be promising or might work well? Tutoring and mentoring by an adult, peer mediation works if the peers are really trained, but peers tend not to be trained. Counseling programs can work to some extent, the research shows, but the main thing is to help create a peaceful school. And schools that do not have adequate bullying prevention programs are violent schools. What are other ways to create peaceful schools? I think to uh, more openly include democracy in the curricula in a variety of subjects. And for teachers to model that and teachers to talk about that and to talk about hierarchy, you know, to hold the jocks and preps accountable. A lot of times they're higher status students and they get away with more and they set the norm for uh, cruel behavior because bullying is a public display of power and the school elites want to maintain their power. But also violent electronic media is anti-democratic. So we need to have democratic classrooms. When I teach I let students make many decisions. Students need to be empowered, especially during adolescence. You know, they're seeking self-identity. They're seeking to become empowered. And schools are inherently restrictive. They're very hierarchical. Uh, They're very regimented. 
and disempowering. So we need to learn how to empower students in real tangible ways within schools and give them voting rights within schools, for example, have them decide how to hold bullies accountable, you know, hold student forums about bullying, hold the bullies to task. The problem if bullies aren't held accountable, they tend to become domestic violence people. They tend to become criminals and engage in future violence because they're not held accountable. So in that way, schools can be crucibles for future violence. Well, that was Mariana King, a teacher and author of the book, The Crisis of School Violence, A New Perspective. We'll have a bit more from Megan's conversation with Ms. King later in the program, and you can hear the entire interview with her at our website, peacetalksradio.com, under the September 2021 episode. You are listening to Peace Talks Radio, and now we're going to continue Megan Kamrick's conversation with Brian Gruber, co-author of the book, Surmountable, How Citizens from Selma to Seoul Changed the World. You know, one of the movements that he and co-author Adam Monier Edwards explored in the book was Occupy Wall Street. It began in New York City's Zuccotti Park in September of 2011 in the aftermath of the Great Recession, the one that brought the collapse of the housing market fueled by risky practices and lax regulation over large financial companies. But the two authors disagreed about whether that movement was actually successful. First of all, I interviewed Kali Lawson, who started the whole thing from Adbusters Magazine in Vancouver, and I had such a great time with Kali Lawson that I was like a cheerleader for his point of view because I, I kind of got it. And also Todd Gitlin and others who were interviewed, former president of SDS, Columbia University professor, said, what did they actually promise? They just said, here's this hashtag, Occupy Wall Street. Why don't 20,000 people go downtown in September of that year and, and, and Occupy Wall Street? And while they muddled around a lot because of their desire to have horizontal organization with no leaders, that really affected the conversation on the notion of we are the 99%, on the idea of uh, income inequality. And there would be no Bernie Sanders candidacy that achieved the kind of traction that it did without Occupy Wall Street putting those ideas into the collective consciousness. It's interesting because you lay out these wildly different assessments of this movement that began in 2011 from it was a failure to it was a historic milestone on the road to global revolution. So what's your takeaway? My takeaway is that if you look at it from a linear point of view and expectations, and this is where I disagreed with Adam, for example, they had an idea, but they didn't want to push it and they said, we want President Obama to convene a commission on the influence of money in politics and how to remove the influence of money in politics. Great idea. But they decided after the, I think it was called Acampadas. In Madrid, there were these massive protests and it was all horizontal, democratically done. And it really worked in Madrid for the ideas and for the decisions to come democratically from the protesters without a leader. But you can do things without a leader, you can't do things without leadership. And even with Occupy Wall Street, you have David Grabner who coined we are the 99%. But their idea was let this happen like it did in Madrid. That didn't work. There was chaos, there were sociopaths trying to pull it in one direction or the other. And finally, the, the linear path of we're going to occupy Wall Street and dramatically change the influence of money in politics, or ultimately they didn't know what the final objective was, you can look at that and say they failed, they kicked them out of Zuccotti Park. Or you can look at it and say people in this country had a general sense that we are losing our ability to govern, 
We are losing our ability to affect things politically because politics are saturated with money, and especially electoral politics. And they brought this issue to the average person, where now people know when you say the 1%, they've heard of that. So to have a tiny magazine in Vancouver, Canada, run by a 70-year-old Estonian immigrant, do with no budget a Twitter hashtag and change the way Americans look at income inequality and at the perversion of, uh, of politics and money, in my view, that's pretty damn successful. Adam didn't agree. He didn't agree. <laughs> and you begin the book with exploring the massive protests against the Iraq war, which ultimately failed to prevent that war. We're talking right now at the, at the chaotic ending of the U.S. war in Afghanistan. How should we view that massive anti-war movement? that there are limits to protests and petition? Oh, I think we need to be fiercer and more active and more confident. I did another book some years ago, a similar kind of a uh, travel writing project called War of the After Party. I spent the month that the US drew down its 100,000 troops to about 15,000 in December of 2014. I spent that month in Kabul. By that time, it was clear. There was no clarity as to mission. And what we originally said we were setting out to do was being muddled, there was a lot of money being wasted, and, and there was no clear path to any certain victory against uh, an imperfect and imprecise mission. I think, as Gitlin and others said, Dick Cheney decided we're going into Iraq. So no matter how many people protested, no matter how many lies had to be told, no matter how many people, you know, contractors had to be paid off, uh, we were going in, and that was unfortunate. I think the answer is not that let's give up because there's a war machine in this country and worldwide arms sales and money that we should be spending on health care and education and infrastructure is continuing to be spent on an inflated military budget. Somehow in this country we've decided that perpetual war is not only uh, desirable but is cool, is amusing. I mean through all of our entertainment media, video games, movies, television shows, you look at the gun fetish that we have, you know, there's a culture of violence in this country that ultimately also, by the way, comes home to roost. Yeah, you, we should be very frustrated, sad, and uh, depressed after those Iraq marches that there was still that Iraq war, because guess what? The protesters were right. But, uh, you know, you can also take that a step back, which is that people from the, you know, in the 60s and 70s who became frustrated and politically disengaged, instead of voting, instead of being educated about voting, instead of supporting candidates, supporting causes, staying literate and educated and informed by people who are anti-war being disengaged, cynical about the electoral process and not voting, you get 550 people in South Florida determining the election that put George Bush and Dick Cheney into office. So if Al Gore won, the chance of him invading Iraq is near zero. So voting's kind of corny and boring and civics lesson stuff. You know, we've been hearing about voting for a long time. But people who hoard power and money want to hoard more power and money. And the way to rectify that, whether it's with the 1% issue or with the war issue, is by people getting more organized to put their candidates into office. 
Brian Gruber, you write about how many of the outcomes in all these scenarios are the result of many things. It seems to be really just the protest or just one twist and a turn of events. Each situation you describe is unique. But you and your co-author, Adam Monier Edwards, do find common themes from all of these different movements. So I wanted to go through them briefly with you. Know who came before you and why is this so important? Yeah, I think uh, an understanding of history and an understanding of what works as well as simply inspiring stories to say, I'm part of a long-term human struggle for justice and for creating a better world. And that creates some gravitas and some strength where you have a sense, I'm part of something that's bigger. Sometimes you can learn from what came before you, and sometimes you have younger, fresher ideas of people who say, no, get out of our way, we want to do something that's fresh and unique. And you adapt to unexpected events. Yeah, and this is in virtually every situation. You'll fail, you'll think you know what you're doing, and you'll find you didn't. There'll be setbacks. You regroup and you continue to press forward. So we went to explore a success, and we found out a lot about what failure learned and how people pushed through that and how people used the lessons learned in in failure to get to where they wanted to be. You mentioned this for the cheese sandwiches, getting the mundane right. I love this. Why can this make or break a movement? So we think in terms of, again, King's speech, or in terms of a big breakthrough moment, there's a thousand moments before that visible uh, moment where you need people to get that stuff right. In the uh, South Korea protests, Every Saturday, the unions and various other civil society organizations would have a big party in the, in the main square in, in, in Seoul, and there would be 100,000 people. And this lasted months every Saturday. And you needed people coming out with bullhorns, with food. Food is a big part of it. Like in, in the Ukraine, for example, there were kids who came from western Ukraine near Europe to camp out and protest. Well, it was much colder in Kiev than it is in western Ukraine. So they were freezing. So you had a shoe manufacturer bring boots to the protest to provide free shoes. You had protesters making massive pots of pea soup. And without doing those types of mundane things and harnessing uh, that kind of energy, those protests might not have happened. That one guy putting out the right Facebook post, the Occupy Wall Street people managing these directives and and these social media campaigns. So it's those things before the big visible thing that happens that allows for success. I think that's so important because a lot of the people doing those are usually women or other people who aren't necessarily in positions of power in those situations, but they're not often written about or acknowledged. Right. Right. Yeah, and we try to give probably four or five of the chapters we talk about those people crystallize the idea. You actually talk about branding here, which might make people who see themselves as activists cringe. Yeah, I hate the word brand, but it's a word that people understand. And so if you take that word out, it's what is a brand? Ultimately, I'm sorry to say, homo sapiens have a limited capacity for attention span and for grasping an idea. And so you need to take complex political ideas and bring it down into something recognizable. And so whether branding means a certain image or a certain slogan, or uh, the brand might be more about a, a figurehead person or a leader, I also don't like the word brand, but I think sometimes it's good to learn from how 
corporations and politicians and advertising agencies have manipulated public opinions, sometimes not all for the, for the best. And so how can you be aware of the psychology of mass communication and influence and, and persuasion and use those things? And invariably, in each of these campaigns, there was some unifying idea or some unifying image. You remember Occupy Wall Street, you know, with the woman uh, and the cow, et cetera. And these things stick in people's minds and they're imbued with meaning and they have an effect. And you touched on this, be resilient, which seems like it can be make or break for protest movements because it's a pretty hard one. Yeah, I mean, it, it all gets back to this heroic idea that we as citizens are not just voting for a candidate we like or supporting a piece of legislation that our identity as humans relates to these kind of eternal principles that are embedded in, in a lot of political philosophy. And therefore, it's not just, I'm bored with this idea, it's the idea of how do we walk in the world and what is the American ideal, uh, flawed warts and all, what is the American ideal in the founding documents and in the political philosophy that drove this country as to communal social responsibility. And we're very individualistic as a culture, and we like our individualism, let's face it. We appreciate our freedoms, and it's a good thing. But if we lose this sense of communal social responsibility, that we are part of this national culture and part of an enterprise, and therefore I have a moral, call it spiritual, intellectual, social responsibility to vote, to stay informed, to be educated, to be active, then those things become long-term drivers for how you behave as opposed to, I'm bored with this idea because the ERA is taking a long time, isn't it? So forget it. And it can be popular, you touch on this, in movements and protests say there's no leader. This is a spontaneous uprising and Professor Todd Gitlin pretty much shoots that down. <laughs> so does this mean that there really does need to be leadership even if it's not put forward or highly visible. This is another ongoing debate that, that Adam and I had, especially around Occupy Wall Street. Adam felt strong, and I mostly agree, that often having a leader is a galvanizing force in a social movement. But if you take it more broadly as leadership, again, David Grabner was not executive vice president of Occupy Wall Street. He was a guy who attended these assemblies who became a powerful intellectual force in, in that movement. So you definitely need leadership. You need leadership in logistical organization, in creating the messaging, in uh, persistence, in inspiring and motivating other people, in forming alliances. So do you need one somewhat dictatorial, hard-nosed, autocratic leader? No. But do you need uh, people to uh, fulfill some of those roles formally or informally, definitely. So what would you like people who are reading this, maybe um, some of them will be activists, maybe some of them have never gone to a protest in their life. Is this for anyone, even if they're not out marching in the street? I think so. There's a core uh, target audience of people who care about what's happening in the world and want to act. And the word activist has baggage to it, even though it's the most representative uh, term for what we're talking about in the book. We need to engage. We need to act. And what a lot of the stories in the book were about, like Tasnan Qadi, who is a uh, devout Muslim mother of three wearing the veil for seven years, who saw what was happening in society, took off the veil, 
put the kids with the grandkids to some degree and other family members and said, I'm going to take to the streets and felt I cannot allow this world as it is without taking action. So I think there's sort of two levels there. One is how to gather these stories and share them in a way that inspires people to be more effective and to be inspired. The broader issue, which uh, we didn't expect when we started out, I certainly didn't, and that gets back to that first chapter, is who are we as sentient beings? Who are we as citizens of the planet and of this country? And what obligations do we have? What opportunities do we have? And what about the human condition includes acting, includes social responsibility, if we don't start taking care of each other, if we don't start living James Madison's vision of the informed citizen and, and highly educated, well-educated citizen that's engaged in, in the country, there is no democracy. That's Brian Gruber, co-author with Adam Monier Edwards of the book Surmountable, How Citizens from Selma to Seoul Changed the World. You can find out about the book and Megan's full interview with Brian can be heard at peacetalksradio.com under our September 2021 episode. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll hear more from Mariana King about how to create more peaceful schools. Stay tuned. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. We want to pick up with correspondent Megan Kamrick's interview with Mariana King, who's the author of the book, The Crisis of School Violence, A New Perspective, about the idea of empowering students to create accountability for those who commit violence, such as bullies. Right now, what tends to happen if they're held accountable is they enter what's called the school to jail pipeline, basically, which isn't always the best way to approach it either. Do you know of any schools that are doing that, that where the students are more empowered to call out these behaviors? The sad thing is I don't. And the sad thing is I have not been able to find any schools that incorporate media literacy. I have volunteered to local schools here in South Central Colorado. Uh, I have met with superintendents and volunteered to do school training. And I think part of it is because violent media is taken for granted. It's part of everyday life. It's not questioned. It's like a stainless steel wall. And uh, people are influenced by the misinformation and disinformation, and they just don't consider it to be a priority. So it's very frustrating. Mm -hmm. And I hope my book will help to change that. Why is media literacy important? Electronic Entertainment media elicits the response of the right cerebral hemisphere. 
The left cerebral hemisphere is the critical thinking hemisphere. Uh, it's involved with reading, writing, and arithmetic, making uh, decisions. The right cerebral hemisphere is more dreamlike. It's interested in entertainment and drama, facial recognition, color, and music. So the right cerebral hemisphere is really engaged and the ability to think critically is out to lunch, even to some extent with the news and the so-called news. And there's this dumbing down of America. And in my master's thesis, I pointed out that 50 years of exposure to a predominantly right cerebral hemisphere eliciting mechanism that people are going to become right cerebral hemispheric over time. They're going to find it more difficult to read and to write correctly. And that's the case. And that could be correlative, but I don't think it is. The book has a chapter called The Brain's Response to Violent Electronic Entertainment Media. And it points out how video games and the usual forms of electronic entertainment media obstruct the ability to think critically, not only because of content, but because of the technology. So that's another uh, factor in terms of reduced academic performance, classroom disruptions, bullying, and other kinds of violence. You're laying out things that we can do, different people, parents, teachers, individuals. So what can parents do? Let's start with them. Well, first of all, we all need to recognize we've been relatively desensitized by the violent media. Parents need to recognize that, and especially young parents who've been heavily exposed. The younger you are, the more heavily you've been exposed. So they really take stock of their own history and to make some self-conscious decisions about their own media consumption, to watch media with their children, to limit children's time to media, especially violent media, you know, to really keep tabs on that from an early age. Even toddlers are engaged in bullying because they're exposed to violent media. Even cartoons are violent. So to really make a connection between their wanting to be their, their child to be a success and the connection to exposure to violent entertainment media, the more you're exposed, especially to violent video games, the less likely you are to have a successful career, the less like this is based on research, uh, longitudinal research, the less likely you're able to be successful in relationships, the less likely you're able to make a good income. And because it's all related to how the brain responds, uh, the brain uh, and the passivity that video games help to engender. And that bothers me too about the political aspects of, of the passivity taught by entertainment media because it spills over into political passivity, mm. you know, coupled with ignorance of what's really going on in the world and the misinformation, you know, from the uh, so-called news. And what do teachers need to do? You've touched on this a little bit. Well, teachers need also, you know, they're, they're individuals and their parents, but they need to make use of the free resources that the book includes, like the Center for Media Literacy. There's uh, curricula, there's modules, there's uh, films uh, that can be incorporated into a variety of uh, classroom subjects. But another thing uh, that I think the schools need to do is to really look at the jock culture and the emphasis on sports. You know, in Salida, here in Southern Colorado, there's dozens and dozens of signs in front of houses saying, my child is an athlete. There's no sign saying my child is a scholar, you know, or my child is an activist. So it's almost like this Germanic fascistic emphasis on physical prowess, ignoring 
from the neck up part of the body. And so schools need to reassess that. Too often coaches become principals, uh, become superintendents. And so there's this ideology and this perpetuation of the student elites uh, and this ideology of uh, this emphasis on sports. Plus, you know, me against you, competition, I win, you lose. It's all part of the uh, war-making mentality of the culture of violence. Some of us do not have children, we're not involved in the school system, but it still is important because it impacts our whole society. Obviously, these will be the people who will take over our society. What should we do as individuals if we're not engaged daily in the school systems? The resources listed at the end of my book uh, include organizations that are working to uh, change legislation. There's uh, the uh, truce, T-R-U-C-E, is for uh, teachers who want to become more active. There's other organizations that people could educate themselves, first of all. Uh, they can educate themselves about the issues, about the resources, and they can join uh, like-minded people. Uh, they can, of course, write to their elected representatives, uh, but also, uh, of course, there's power in numbers, and they can join these organizations that already have uh, programs in place to help move legislation forward. You know, we've seen young people take the lead on, especially around issues around climate change, and I think we overlook their intelligence. What should we be looking? We've talked a lot about the ones who are causing violence, but um, how should we tap into young people for solutions? Well, the book's chapter about human nature points out it's part of human nature to want to contribute, to want to be part of the community, and uh, to want to make a contribution. And that's why service learning is such a good program, uh, because young people can make a tangible contribution. I think this, like the Student Environmental Action Coalition, but young people addressing climate change and other environmental problems, speaks to this core of young people. They want to make a change. They want to make a difference. They want to do something positive in their lives. And that's another thing schools should do is to contribute that dynamic, you know, to help that bud to grow and to blossom. Uh, so they become activists and engaged and informed citizens. People need to educate themselves. My book is a good start. My book is the only interdisciplinary book about uh, school violence. I, I cover a lot of bases. And uh, people need to understand how the future really is being affected by school violence and by the uh, maverick entertainment industries. I should also have add students, of course, you know, the one, especially the Parkland students helped create the March for Our Lives um, movement. So they are also taking the lead on some of those. Yes. And so, the, but this emphasis on gun control is necessary, but it's not sufficient because guns are so intertwined with exposure to violent video games. And they're a, a symbol of power. They're a literal symbol of power, but they're, I mean, they're figuratively a symbol of power. But rampage shooters seize the power by seizing the guns and taking it into their own hands and acting on that. What is at stake if we don't make these changes that you outline in your book? The book was published in December of 2020, and the book predicted that unless school violence is curtailed, that violence is going to escalate. So the following month, we have the violent January 6th insurrection. And in the spring, when businesses started to open, uh, we had this avalanche of rampage shootings uh, because people have been ex really exposed to violent video games during the pandemic. 
also frustrated. Uh, so my prediction was and is that we're going to continue to become a mean-spirited society. It's going to get worse. The separation and alienation between people is going to increase. Gamers develop what researchers call hostile bias or a hostile ex expectation. So many young people are sullen and hostile, and we have to ask why. Well, one reason is many of them don't see much of a future for themselves or for the human race, but also they're angered because they live in this dark world that promotes and glorifies death and violence. Uh, so it's a, a bleak world for many young people, but with media literacy as an intervention, to help to wake them up as to how they're being manipulated. And media literacy also is really key for adolescents because they want to be free. They don't want to be manipulated. They want to be their own person. So if they're taught about how the media manipulates them into being uh, super consumers or being uh, bulimic uh, or being uh, angry and performing poorly academically, if they're taught about how this happens and there's alternative things that they can do, do constructive things for themselves and for society uh, as an alternative to being so heavily engrossed in violent media. You can find links to Mariana King's book, The Crisis of School Violence, A New Perspective, at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Peacetalksradio.com. Look for the September 2021 episode. It's also where you can hear Megan's complete interview with her and all the programs in our series, in fact, dating back to 2002. You can also find photos of our guests and partial transcripts, sign up for our podcast or our newsletter. You can order CDs, and you can also make a donation to keep this program going into the future, all at peacetalksradio.com. Support comes from listeners like you. Also, the Albuquerque Community Foundation Ties Fund. Special thanks always to KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves-Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Megan Kamrick, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to, and yes, for supporting, Peace Talks Radio.